growing up, we were not financially well set at all. Uh, my, my mother carried on three jobs to support us. She was a single mother. You know, we didn't know where the next meal was going to come from a lot of times, um, but she also was someone that always opened her house up. So whenever anybody had a problem at their home or someone popped by and they needed a meal, she would uh, spread the food and it would always, always last. I've always given money to people and I've always tried to help people out. Mike, Mike sent out the line of project to give out $100,000 out of the operating budget to all the people that are sitting at church during all the sessions. So Mike said, pray, pray with what you're going to do with it. And I didn't know how much I was going to get, and I opened it up, and it was a $50 bill. I was like, great, it's a $50 bill. And I'm like, well, I've, I've got to do something with it. So at first I was like, well, I want to, want to at least double it. So the first thing, the best way to double it is I doubled it with my own money. And then... Um, so I had 100 bucks, so you can do a lot more with 150. I decided to do a raffle, so I did a raffle, and I, I raised about 650, $685. At first I was like, well, maybe I'll give money to the uh, uh, Raleigh Rescue Mission or the food bank, but uh, I want to do more than that. So I, I, I had the idea of, of delivering meals myself to people in need downtown. I wanted to give them out to people. I wanted to sit, talk to them. I wanted to look them in the eyes. I wanted to tell them about, you know, Jesus, give them hope. First place I went to was, um, you know, there was a guy sitting at a bus stop. And I went in the parking lot and I said, hey, I got a, I got meals, are you hungry? And he was like, yeah, oh, it just looked like he was gonna cry. He's like, yeah, I'm hungry, I haven't eaten in a while. And a couple minutes with this individual, he, he said, pray for me. And I got his name and he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll pray for you, but let's pray right now. So we prayed. And then, next time I went to someone else it was odd I gave the meals we talked people didn't look homeless then the next thing they said was the same thing the other person said pray for me you know and I don't even know if I talked to them about God and I just realized this is God's sign that you know I was doing the right thing you know I guess what I was trying to do is provide them you know that someone cares I can give you a meal, but it's not just about a delivering a meal. I'm here to tell you there's hope. You don't need the church to, to give you backing to do something. You, you can just take the initiative and do it yourself. It doesn't take much to give, whether it's your time or a smile. So many people without hope. There's so many people that are Christians that need help. And, you know, my theory is that you're you're really, everyone's basically just a few paychecks away from being homeless. Everyone has to do it. You know, they have to do something because we're all in it together. Great story, great guy. When a series we're calling Unconditional Family, and in this series we're learning how to experience the church family as God designed it to be experienced and to do that each week we're looking at a different church value a family value that we need to incorporate into our lives if that dream of becoming the church family God designed us to be is going to become a reality and this week we're going to look at the importance of being people of generosity not only how it impacts our relationships with one another but how it impacts our relationship with the community and to do that I want to look at a really cool story of the book of Ezra don't even turn there because by the time you find it uh, I'll be finished okay so we're gonna put the verses up on the screen if you have your phone app get hope phone app on your smartphone you can go to that click on message all the verses that we're gonna be looking at are gonna come up but anyway to really appreciate uh, 
the book of Ezra, the story of Ezra, you've got to understand the circumstances under which the book was written. And so I'm going to give you a quick seminary course in Hebrew history. It'll be a crash course. Most of us, because we've seen the movie, we know the part about the Exodus, that the Hebrew people were slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. God raised up Moses. He was the deliverer. He led them out of Egypt. He led them across the Red Sea. He led them to the desert, to the promised land. And it's called the promised land because it's the land that God promised to give the Jews. He says, this is going to be your little, your little slice of pie right here, your little part of heaven right here. It's the promised land. And so they get right up to Kadesh Barnea, they get up to the promised land, and God says, now listen, when you get into the land, I want you to wipe out all the inhabitants. I want you to run them out of the land, right? And so Moses thinks, well, if we're going to do that, we better, we better find out what we're up against. So he sends in the spies, the spies come back and say, the guys are big, the armies are strong, the cities are fortified. We're not really sure that God can deliver on his promise of giving us the promised land. And so they didn't go in. And you know the story, they wandered in the desert for 40 years, a whole generation died off, even Moses died off. And 40 years later, they come back to Kadesh Barnea, the exact same place where they were 40 years earlier. And again, God says, now before you go into the land, I want you to remember, when you get there, drive out the inhabitants of the land. And I know what some of you are thinking, if you're new to church, you're thinking, why would God ask them to do that? I mean, that doesn't even seem fair. They were there first, that's their home. But God had told the his Hebrew people, I am going to give it to you. It reminds me of what it says in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8. This is what God says, my thoughts aren't your thoughts, your ways aren't my ways. We don't do things the same way, and I don't have to explain myself to you. Just run out the inhabitants of the land. The problem is the Hebrew people, they went into the land, and they failed to obey God's command. They left the people in the land. So when they settled in their homes, they, they were surrounded by all these people who worshipped other gods, had other lifestyles, other values, other belief systems. And before long, the Hebrew people, they were hanging out with these guys. You know, the guys were going to sports bars together. The women were getting together and playing bunco, right? And before long, they were dating each other. And then they were falling in love with each other. And before long, they were marrying these people who had other belief systems and other gods. And just as you would expect... The Hebrew people started to make compromises in their allegiance to God. And they weren't following God. And they weren't obeying God. And they weren't following his principles. And they weren't following his precepts. But this is what's interesting. Even though these were rebellious, disobedient people, God would not give up on them. He was head over heels in love with these people. In fact, there's a great verse over 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15. It says this, The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them, that would be the Jews, through his messengers, and that would be the prophets, again and again, because he had pity on his people. That means that God looked at these rebellious people, this disobedient people that were his chosen people, and out of a heart of compassion, even though they were disobedient, he continued to have patience with them. He continued to encourage them to straighten up, to obey his word, to follow him. But they just, they just wouldn't listen. They just would not cooperate. I mean, they were like a bunch of teenagers, right? And then it says this in verse 16. They mocked God's messengers. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people. And there was no remedy. In other words, there finally came a time when God said, that is enough. That My patience has run thin. You guys have crossed the line. You're going to have to experience some hard lessons. You're going to have to experience some tough love. So you get to this date, 586 B.C., and if you took a history of world civilization in college or even in, in, in high school, you remember the date, 588, 586 B.C. And this is what happened. It says in verse 17, he, and that's a reference to God, he brought up against them, that would be the, the Hebrew people, 
the king of the Babylonians, his name was Nebuchadnezzar, who killed their young men with a sword in the sanctuary. He did not spare young men nor young women, the elderly or the infirm. He, Nebuchadnezzar, carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces, and they destroyed everything of value there. So think about this. This temple that David planned and eventually his son Solomon built, it's destroyed. Jerusalem is basically reduced to a pile of ashes. Many of the people were executed. Those who weren't executed were taken into slave, to be slaves in a foreign land. And this period of time in Hebrew history is known as the Babylonian captivity. This is where you get those great stories like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three men in the fiery furnace. This is where you get the story of Daniel in the lion's den, right? But these Jewish people, they remained captive in Babylon for 70 years. But in the back of their minds, there was this hope that one day this captivity would end. And it was because of something the prophet Jeremiah said. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. In other words, I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem. So Jesus said, or God says to his people, after you've been captive in Babylon for 70 years, after you've learned some hard lessons, I am going to free you. In other words, there's going to be a second exodus. Just as your forefathers exited Egypt and made their way to the promised land, after you've been in captivity for 70 years, you're going to exit Babylon, and you're going to make that 900-mile journey back to Jerusalem. And sure enough, after 70 years, Babylon falls to Persia. The history gets a little bit complicated, maybe even a little boring if you don't like history. But once again, the Bible is proven to be right. Once again, the Bible is proven to be accurate. Because when Babylon falls to Persia, right away there's a king. His name is King Cyrus of Persia. And he looks with favor on the Jews for no logical reason. And he decides that he's going to let them go back to their homeland under the leadership of a guy, one of the favorite, my favorite guys in the Bible, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. If you have a boy on the way, you should name him Zerubbabel. He will probably get beat up a lot, but name him Zerubbabel. Let's just say that together, Zerubbabel. Doesn't that feel good to say Zerubbabel? It just kind of rolls right off your lips, right? So King Cyrus, he calls in Zerubbabel, and he says, listen, I'm going to send you back to Jerusalem with all the people. He doesn't know that he's fulfilling God's prophecy. He is just doing it. And he says, when you get back to Jerusalem, I want you to rebuild the temple that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. I want you to rebuild the temple to your God. Now make sure you're getting this. Here we have King Cyrus. He is a pagan, unbelieving king. And not only is he sending the Jewish people back to Jerusalem, he's sending them back to build a temple to a God that he doesn't even believe in. And on top of that, King Cyrus, he also decides to finance the rebuilding of this temple to this God that he doesn't even believe in. So Zerubbabel, he gets back to Jerusalem, and sure enough, he starts on the temple. However, some of the surrounding nations, uh, they, they aren't all that thrilled with the prospect of Israel being back in the land. They're not all that thrilled with the prospect of Israel becoming a superpower again. Sound familiar, right? Right. So these nations, they get together and they write this letter to King Cyrus basically saying, King Cyrus, have you lost your mind? Don't you realize that if these Jews get reestablished in the land, they will be a pain in our neck for centuries. I doubt that they use the word neck. I'll just throw that in there because it's a family show, right? 
So these surrounding nations, they stop in, they step in and they stop the rebuilding of the temple. And this goes back and forth for years. You know, the Hebrew people, they start the temple. The surrounding nations come in and stop the temple. The Hebrew people start the temple. They come in and stop the temple. It goes on and off, and it's chaos. Well, four kings, now stick with me, four kings, 38 years later. There's a new king, King Darius. And he's looking through the archives of his country. And he realizes and he discovers that King Cyrus, years earlier, had, had commissioned the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. But he discovers that the temple has never been completed. So he writes a letter to all of the surrounding nations of Israel. And this is what he says. Not only are you to stop harassing these people, you're to help them finish this temple to their God that King Cyrus didn't believe in and I don't believe in either. Now here's my point of the story. I want you to understand that God uses these unbelieving kings to build a temple for a God that they don't even believe in. Why would God do that? Because when God has a plan, it is going to come to pass. And sure enough, according to Ezra chapter 6 verse 14, the Jews go back to work. They finish the temple. Then they start working on the city. Nehemiah comes along. You remember the great story of Nehemiah? He rebuilds the wall. And they reestablish the nation of Israel in the promised land just as God had promised. 20 more years go by. Now think about this. This is 130 years later after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. 20 years go by and something else amazing happens. King Darius dies and there's a new king on the throne. His name is King Artaxerxes. He is the most powerful man who leads the most powerful nation on earth. And again, one day for no logical reason... Artaxerxes gets the idea that he's going to take all the treasure, in other words, all the silver, all the gold, all the temple vessels that were stolen by Nebuchadnezzar when he ransacked Jerusalem 130 years earlier. He's going to take all of it, and out of this incredible gesture of generosity, he's going to give it back to the nation of Israel. Now understand, this is stuff that no Jew has seen for 130 years. In fact, the last time any Jew saw any of this stuff was when Nebuchadnezzar was hauling it off out of Jerusalem 130 years earlier. But because of God, it's all been kept intact by the enemies of Israel for 130 years. And so Artaxerxes, he tells Ezra, listen, I want you to take all this gold, all this silver, all the temple vessels. It's yours. I want you to take it back to Jerusalem. And it dawns on Ezra that God is alive God is at work. God is up to something. God is keeping his promise. And he realizes that God's plan to restore the nation of Israel is coming to pass. Here's the problem. When they start stacking up all this treasure, they realize, wow, this is no small task. In fact, if you read the story, you'll discover that it was 25 tons of silver and gold. That's not the problem. The problem is that the temple, the destination, is located 900 miles away. And in those days, that was a four-month journey through the desert. And so all of a sudden, Ezra's celebration is cut short because he realizes, man, when word hits the street that we're making this four-month trek through the desert with 25 tons of silver and gold, we'll be lucky to get back to Jerusalem with our lives, much less with all of this wealth. 
But at the same time, he's trying to keep in perspective. God is at work. God is doing something. God has given them this incredible opportunity. So here is Ezra sitting on this great gift from God. Here is Ezra realizing this is a great opportunity. But he also has this fear deep down inside that he's going to die in the process of trying to get it back to Jerusalem. And initially he thinks, you know what, I'll just go into King Artaxerxes and I'll just ask for an armed escort to make sure we get back to Jerusalem safely. The problem is Artaxerxes doesn't even believe in God. He's a pagan king. He's an unbelieving king. And, and Ezra's been telling him how great the God of Israel is. And he's like, man, if I go in and tell him we need an escort, he's going to be like, well, hey, if your God's so great, why can't he protect you getting this stuff back to Jerusalem? So he decides that's not a good idea. And so Ezra does what we all do when we can't come up with anything else to do. He prays. God, give me a plan. How is this supposed to happen? And God gives him a plan, and it's a very simple plan. He says, Ezra, this is what I want you to do. I want you to identify 24 leaders, have each one of those leaders assemble a crew, divide up the 25 tons of gold and silver among these 24 crews, and then send them off at different times. In other words, stagger them throughout the desert over that 900-mile journey. So there won't be this big caravan with 25 tons of gold and silver that basically says, rob us, right? And so Ezra, he gets the 24 crews together. He gives them a prearranged date that they're going to meet in the front of the temple in Jerusalem. And then they're going to count the loot and see how much of the money actually made it on this 900-mile journey. So they start the journey. Ezra leads the way. Let's pick it up. Ezra chapter 8, verse 31. Ezra says, the hand of God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem where we rested three days. Verse 33. On the fourth day, in the house of God, we weighed out the silver and the gold and the sacred articles. Notice verse 34. Everything was accounted for. And I am guarantee you when they realized they showed up with 25 tons of gold and silver, there was a party, there was a celebration, fireworks, I mean, champagne corks all over the place, right? Because they realized God had intervened, God had restored the nation, God had restored the temple, God had even been faithful and restored their wealth. Great story. You ought to try reading this stuff sometime. It's incredible, right? But it's just a story if we don't learn anything from it. So there are some lessons that relate to our church family here at Hope that just jump right out of, out of the pages of this story to me. Here's the first one. Just like the Jewish people, God has allowed our church to find favor with those who don't even believe what we believe. Just as God had these kings who didn't even believe in God help the nation of Israel, God has surrounded us in this community with people to help us reach the triangle and change the world who don't even believe what we believe. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have never been involved with a church where so many unbelieving people had so much interest in church. I'll never forget years ago, we were on Highway 54, and we'd gone to three services, and we had no room to grow, but we didn't have any money to buy anything else, and we were beating our head against doors, and finally, finally, Mr. Martin, who owned this piece of property, one day sitting at Bob Evans over here at Crossroads, he shook my hand, and he says, I'm going to give this property to Hope Community Church and Grace School, which is great. We had a free piece of property that we could have never afforded. Here's the problem. We had a city in Raleigh. And the city council, who didn't want a mega church and a big Christian school on this property, they knew it was going to turn into six flags over Jesus. They knew that the neighbors were going to complain. 
And so we put our wonderful plan together, and I went before the city in downtown Raleigh, and they unanimously voted not to allow us to build on this property. So we got a great piece of property, but we can't do anything on it. So I came back to the church, just like with Ezra. We would run out of ideas, and what else can we do? We got to pray, right? And I told the congregation, you better pray. You better pray. And I was reminded of the verse about how, how, how the uh, king's hearts are like channel the water in the hand of God. And he can just direct them wherever he wants to, right? So he said, God, work in their hearts. They don't know you. They don't love you. They're not interested in helping us reach our mission and vision. But you take care of that. I went back two weeks later, all prepared to beg, plead, cry. I had Laura ready to cry because when a woman cries, she always gets her way. I mean, we were bringing in the big guns. But without me saying a word, they stopped me and they said, Pastor Mike, we just want you to know, we have reconsidered and we have decided unanimously to rezone the property so that your vision can be completed. And I'm thinking, here are people who don't even worship the God that we worship. But they're coming alongside of us and saying, go do your thing. We think it's going to be for the betterment of our community. A few weeks ago, I had to have an, an electrical inspection out at my house, a little project. And the electrical inspector came out from Apex, the peak of good living, by the way. And, uh, however, I am moving to Holly Springs. I have no idea why, but I am moving to Holly Springs. So we were selling our house, and I need this electrical inspection. And this guy shows up, and I say, how long is this going to take? He says, man, we are weeks behind. I'm like, I don't have weeks. He says, don't worry. I'm going to push this through for you in a couple of days. I said, why? He says, because I know who you are. That's usually not good. Never good (laughs) when people say that. He says, I know who you are. You're the pastor of that church. You're building that big campus in Apex. And I said, oh, where do you go to church? Automatically assuming he must be a Christian. He said, I don't go to church. I hunt and fish. (laughs) Well, I'm like, you'd fit right in it. Hope we got people who only come about once every three months, huh, John Brown, during hunting and fishing season, right? (laughs) But he said, no, I'm not into that stuff. But I just believe that what you guys are going to do in Apex It's going to impact and change our community. And I'm going to do my part to make sure that that building is completed as quickly as possible. And he said, by the way, when you have your opening weekend, make sure you invite me. I want to be there. And I'm thinking, here's a guy who's openly saying, I don't really care about this stuff. But God uses a person. Listen, a couple of weeks ago when I talked about serving selflessly, there was a young, like, 25-year-old guy who met me under the portico outside after the service. And he says, you don't know me. I've been going here for a few months. I don't really believe this stuff. I'm not even sure there really is a God. But I like this idea of serving. You think I could serve around here? Could I at least park cars or something? I'm like, are you kidding me? I can't even get the Christians who go here <laughs> to serve. And here you're telling me you're not a Christian, but you want to serve. What's wrong with this picture? And we have story after story like that. And I don't know how long it's going to last. But i got to tell you, for this time period, God has given us some amazing opportunities. He's giving us favor in the eyes of people who don't even believe what we believe. A lot of you sitting here this weekend, you're just trying to figure it out. But you're here. And I don't know why. I don't need to know why. I just know a lot of people come through the doors of our campuses on the weekend And they leave and they still don't agree with us. And they still don't believe what we believe. But they keep coming back the next week. And that's why we have a saying around here, hang around the pond long enough, you might just fall in, right? You might just become a a Christian by entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But right now, God has allowed our church to find favor with our community. People who don't even believe what we believe. And that's a pretty special thing. Here's the second lesson I get from this story. And this one's really for me, okay? 
But I've got to start leading you guys with courage. And I'll show you why I say that. Right after Ezra realizes that God has given him this maybe once-in-a-lifetime incredible opportunity, this is what Ezra says in Ezra chapter 7, verse 27. He says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it in the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Now notice this next phrase. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage. In other words, when, it, when the light came on and Ezra realized that God was at work, that God had given him this incredible opportunity, he says, I realized at that moment I had to step up. I had to begin to lead regardless of the risk. Now let's be honest, he could have had all kinds of reasons to play it safe. Ezra could have said, you know what, I kind of like Persia, I'm used to Persia, my family's in Persia, kids like Persia, got great schools in Persia, great youth soccer leagues in Persia. You know, why in the world would I want to uproot my family, move them to Israel, I hear it's a mess over there, but instead he says, I took courage and I stepped out. Now, I don't think I'm a great leader, I think there's some areas where I, I've led you pretty well, but I'll be honest with you. There are some areas where I've definitely failed you as a leader. And sometimes it's just because I'm afraid, man, if I take that strong of a stance, I'm going to be misunderstood. Sometimes it's because I want you to like me. And that's a huge character flaw. I'll admit that. But see, a story like this, this reminds me that God has given us some incredible opportunities at Hope. I don't know if you realize it or not, but he has blessed us like crazy. But if we're going to take advantage of those opportunities, see, i got to put my big boy panties on and i got to start leading this church forward. I can't be comfortable with where we are. I can't get comfortable with what God's allowed us to accomplish. I can't get to the point where I just don't want to rock the boat or make waves. Because I'm not sure that we've even scratched the surface of what God wants to do through us here. In fact, this is, I, every once in a while I get this, I get unsettled in my spirit. And, and, and lately, I, I feel like God has been saying to me, and this is kind of weird because I'm 59 years old, but I told Laura, I said, honey, I feel like what God is saying is, you can't coast right now. You can't relax right now because this isn't the end. This is just the beginning. So, Mike, you've got to lead with courage. You've got to lead with diligence, which brings me to the third lesson. As I was reading this story, my reaction to this story was, Wow. God, why don't you just dump 25 tons of gold and silver on Hope Community Church? I mean, why does the Old Testament get all the great miracles, right? Give us a miracle like that. See, that would be Wells Fargo's our bank. It would be like Wells Fargo calling me on Monday and say, hey, man, we just had an audit, and somehow we overlooked it. We've got an extra $40 million sitting in our vault over here, and we would love to give it to Hope Community Church. If you would just bring some minivans down here, you can have it. And I'd get all you soccer moms together with your minivans, and we'd go to Wells Fargo, and we'd load up that money, and we'd have all the money we could possibly need to do whatever it is that we wanted to do, right? And then the lesson hit me. God has already provided us with all we need to take advantage of the opportunities he's given us. We already have the money. It's in our bank accounts. I just haven't done a very good job, maybe because I'm a coward or maybe because I don't want to be misunderstood. I haven't done a very good job 
of leading you to the point that you want to give it. But this is what's interesting. When it comes to certain things we talk about around here, I will flat wear you out. Have you noticed that I will preach the same thing over and over and over again? You know what? People ask me that. Why do you keep preaching the same stuff? I said, when you guys start doing it, I'll stop preaching it. We'll move on to something else. It's that simple, right? I will flat wear you out to get you to do what I feel like God wants you to do. Some of you finally broke down last week and got into a small group. That's awesome. Some of you are like, if you'll quit talking about it, I'll serve. I'll love. I'll accept. I'll forget. If you'll just stop talking about it, I will do it. I will wear you out. I don't even mind coming on strong and asking for money for other organizations. When we were partnering in, with ICDI and drilling wells in the Central African Republic, at that time the poorest country on the planet, I was shameless in how I pressured you, and we collected millions of dollars to drill wells in villages and with pygmies all throughout Central African Republic, and we started churches. I didn't mind doing that. I didn't mind shaking you down when I felt God calling us to build that worship center for those orphans in Gulu in the northern part of U U Uganda. I was shameless. I said, we got to do this. We got to do this. And I pestered you until you did it. There have been times when I've challenged you to leave your coat. How many of you were around the day I said, there, we got plenty of coats, and some people in our community have no coats, right? And we piled up our coats in the community, and we shivered all the way home, right? At least two or three times I've said, leave your shoes. You don't need your shoes. You got plenty of shoes. And you took off your shoes and you left them in the lobby and we gave them to our community and we walked out of here with those hospital booties on. We looked like the biggest idiots in the world going to the Golden Corral. Like, what is wrong with you people, right? But you know what? We did it. We did it. I've been bold. I mean, I've asked you to empty your wallets. We had a Raleigh policeman who took his life. He had just found Christ in our church along with his wife. They left a widow with a one-year-old and a two-year-old. And I remember sitting up here that weekend and saying, we're going to do something for this new widow. Don't you dare leave this room with any money in your wallet or your purse. And we put people at each door with a box. And everybody's emptying their wallet and emptying their purses. And we collected that day while you walked out of this auditorium $66,000 and gave it to this widow so she could move forward with her life. There are times I have been bold, but I'm telling you, when it comes to me pushing you that strong about your financial commitment and generosity to this church family, I'm a little bit of a wuss, and I will admit it. And as I said earlier, part of the reason is I don't want to be misunderstood. Part of it is because I know that you bring your friends here, and they, they hate preachers who talk about money. I'm sensitive to that. But I'm going to be honest with you. Part of the reason is you do a pretty good job without me having to say a whole lot. I mean, think about this. This year, we're on track as a congregation to give $16 million. That's a lot of money. That is 30% increase over last year. And it's so easy for me to look at that and say, $16 million, that's pretty good. But I think God is going, are you kidding me, Mike? That's not good. See, God's not impressed. Let me tell you why he's not impressed. He's not impressed because that's not our capacity. That is not our potential as a church family. And I really believe that maybe the reason we've never reached our potential and our capacity is, is I'm not really, really good at leading in this area. And I've never really pushed you in this area. I push you to be a good spouse. I push you to be a good parent, a good friend, a good servant, a good teen, a good kid. I mean, I, I, I push you. I can look at $16 million and say, that ain't bad, right? But that's not our potential. And for most of us, and I have the, the figures that bear this out. For most of us, that's our casual giving habit. Our potential is at least double, maybe triple what we give. 
I mean, with very little effort, very little effort, we could be generating 35 to $40 million a year for projects in our community and around the world. And I say that because the finance team, they did a little bit of work for it. There's about 13% of you sitting here that tithe. That's God's standard, that tithe. That means there's over 85% of you that don't. Hey, if we could just get to 50%, we would go from 16 million a year to 30, 32 million a year. And I know what some of you are thinking because I've been doing this for a long time and I've already gotten all your emails and questions and comments. So this is what you're thinking. Do we really need it? I mean, you're looking around, look, look at this beautiful. Do we really need the money? Well, let me just say this. If I'm a good leader, you'll never feel like we need it. Because I don't want my unchurched friends from the gym to show up here and think, wow, they really need money. By the way, let me ask you a question. I'm just, I just want you to be honest. We're in church. Can we be honest for a second? How many of you, just raise your hand and keep them up. Don't put them down. How many of you give money to Target? Raise your hand. Come on. Leave them up. How many of you give money to Starbucks? Raise your hand. Come on. Leave them all up. Keep them all up. How many of you give money uh, to uh, Macy's, just raise your hand. Yeah, keep, your, keep them all up. Don't put them down. Listen, you've been sitting there on your rear end. Just hold your hand up for a second. It won't kill you. Might burn three calories, okay? Um, how many of you give money to Apple? Raise your hand. Just raise your hand. Now, here's, see, some of you get in line at Apple for the new phone, buy it, and get back in line because you know the time you get to the front again, another new phone will be out. We, see, I, put your hands down. Put your hands down, right? Now, let me ask you a question. You give money to all those places. Do they need it? And when the bottom falls out of your life, your marriage starts to unravel. There's a death. Your kid goes off the deep end. Let me ask you a question. You going to call the CEO of Apple? You going to call the CEO of Starbucks? You're going to call us, and that's who you're supposed to call. And we're going to support you, and we're going to get you through it. So here's my question. If you're going to give money everywhere else, why wouldn't you give money to the one place that's actually making a difference in your life it's not a matter of need I mean it, when you get right down to it it comes out God as a church has given us some incredible opportunities to make an impact in our community in the world and we'll either begin to give generously as a family to get the job done or we'll choose not to I mean good gracious that apex building that's going up we have the opportunity to imp we're just not building a church building we're building a community center that will be used seven days a week to bring people in so that we could build relationships and introduce them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We have the opportunity to impact thousands of people in the triangle. How about Ship of Zion? I was preaching down there last week. I'm telling you what, they will wear you out. You preach at Ship of Zion, by the time they finish worshiping, I told them, I need a snack and a nap. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not wired for that, right? I mean, it's crazy down there, but I'm telling you, their place was packed, both services. We bought them that building, it's packed. I'm telling you, they could grow 10, 15, 20 times larger than they are if we could buy them a facility, if we could build them a new facility. Let me show you, I had a meeting this week. You can see where Ship Design, those are basically the three places that are available in that area, and that's all that's available if we wanted to get them somewhere where they could grow and expand and make a greater impact in Southeast Raleigh. But at the end of the day, it takes money, doesn't it? Great opportunity, but it takes generosity. Here's another. Let me just show you a video of just how creative some people are, even as, if, as it comes to the ship of Zion. Watch, watch this video.
And the first time I went to Hope a few years ago when a friend led me there and then led my family there, I really valued the, the vision of reaching people where they are and helping them grow in, in their relationship with Christ. And I think part of the Ship of Zion and, and the pantry and what they've done there is created a place for people to be, to be reached and to connect. What we see for the shipyard is really an extension of what's already been done with the ministry at Ship of Zion. What we really want to do is create a, a safe and comfortable environment. The reality is a lot of people don't have access to a gym or a, a fitness training facility that they can afford that's within reach. We're looking to reach young people in the community uh, where obviously it's underserved and, and they're at risk and if they didn't have this kind of resource they might look for other ways to spend their time. I, I know myself this is where I'm comfortable, you know, this is where I've always found kind of my safe place and I'm much more receptive to things that I might not other want to talk about or think about. We think it's going to be a really good environment for people to build their self-esteem and their confidence and build relationships with people in the community, with volunteers from Hope, and really to build a relationship with God. So we see it as a way to expand upon the vision of hope to reach people where they are. We're really excited about this and we can't wait to see what God's gonna do through the shipyard gym. So these guys came to us with that vision. Imagine what that could do to the youth of Southeast Raleigh to bring them into an environment where they could meet Jesus and their lives could change. We have all kinds of opportunities, they take money. This morning, down in Port-au-Prince, Agape Church, our campus there, will have two services. Do you know what time their two services are? 6 a.m. and 8 a.m. Because they have to beat the heat. They don't get to have air conditioning and stuff down there. They will be packed both services. We need to start some new campuses down there because we're transforming that nation from the inside out, developing a whole new generation of leaders with Christian character. But it takes money. We want to put two more campuses in our community, North Raleigh, Garner-Clayton, picked to be by Kiplinger, the fastest growing area, Garner-Clayton, the fastest growing area, not in North Carolina, in the United States of America. Wouldn't it be great if we could get a campus there before the people showed up and we could have that impact in their community? It just takes money. It takes a great deal of money. And so we challenged, you know, we challenged our congregation over this year and next year to give it a level of $42 million, and right now, we're running, at, if, if, if it continues the way it's going, we're going to end up at about $32 million, which is about $10 million short. And there are nights that I lay in bed and suck my thumb and think, we will never, ever do it. But then I remember, oh, yeah, that's right. God's already given us the money. It's in our bank account. So I got to lead you in this area by telling you, we're doing a pretty good job of giving. But we're not doing what we could do. And we're certainly not doing what we should do. And if we don't, just understand what's at stake. If we don't, we will miss the opportunity of a lifetime. And I am telling you, very few churches ever get the opportunities that God has placed before us. And we'll either take advantage of those opportunities by being faithful managers with what God has given us, or we'll choose not to. And let me just say this, because everybody thinks that somehow pastors benefit from this stuff. It would be easier for me just to ignore these opportunities and do nothing. I'm going to tell you, I have a great life right now. I got a great wife. I got a great family. I get, to, I get to pastor a great church. I get to drive a great pickup that's made in America, you know. My foursome won the golf, the galley golf uh, tournament the other day with three teenagers. Life is good. Duke's five and one. 
on a course to play Ohio State for the national championship. By that time, Duke will be the only team Ohio State has played all year with a winning record. I mean, that's, but Duke's on track for that. I even have a pair of shoes that have cartoons on them. I'm telling you, my life is good. I don't need this. I don't need the email some of you are sending right now. I can see your fingers moving. I don't need what you're going to say about me on Facebook. I could just coast, and you know what? You could too. You know the ropes. You know the deal. You don't know where to park and how to get to which service and where the best seats are and how to get your kids in Kid City before they reach capacity and you can't get kids. You know the deal. You, you see, you don't want to coast. Because our mission, our vision, it's never been about being big. It's never been about being full. It's about loving people where they are and encouraging them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And we believe that if we do that, we can reach the triangle and we can change the world. And God has given us the opportunity to see that become a reality. But it's going to require us to make a commitment to the biblical principles of generosity that God has laid out for us in the Bible. And it's very simple, very simple. And I've told you this a million times. God says, I'm going to give you ten. You give me one back. You get to keep the other nine to do whatever you want. But every time I give you ten dollars, you give one back. Now, that's what is called a tithe. And then after you give one back, you can do other things. Like Laura and I, we tithe, and then we support some orphans in Africa, and we give to Young Life, and we have charities that we like to support. Uh, you know, no dogs or trees. We only focus on souls. We're kind of weird that way. If you want to support a charity that's trying to keep basset hounds from, from going extinct, that's great. That's great. But do that after, after you tithe, right? And I think that if we would just... Follow this family rule of tithing. You don't need to sell your beach house, your mountain cabin, your lake home. You don't need to give up your dues at the country club. You don't need to take your kids out of a private school. You don't need to stop drinking coffee at Starbucks. If we would just follow this family rule and tithe, I'm telling you, we could fund projects locally and globally around the world all day long and never break a sweat. And I know right now what some of you Bible scholars are thinking because you're always looking for a loophole. You're thinking this. And please don't email me this. I don't think that the New Testament teaches tithing. See, I get that all the time from you people. Well, to which I want to respond, you don't really want to know about New Testament giving. Because New Testament giving, a lifestyle of generosity makes tithing look like a cakewalk. I mean, think about it. Every time Jesus dealt with the Old Testament law, did he dumb down the law or did he raise the standard? He raised the standard. Jesus came along and said, hey, you've heard it said in the law, thou shalt not commit adultery. I'm telling you, don't even lust. Let's raise the standard. You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. Jesus said, I'm going to tell you, you're not even allowed to hate each other. Imagine what he would say about giving. You don't even want to know. You don't even want to know. So don't think of it as something that you have to do. Think of it as something as a family member we get to do because God has so graciously given to us. And I'm just going to tell you, I've told you before, Laura and I during this two-year period, we've actually committed 20% back to Hope Community Church. And I'm not telling you that to brag it or impress you. I'm telling you that because I know what some of you are thinking. So I want you to know, if I ask you to do this, you should expect this of me. But I'll tell you this, it's not because we have to. It's because we are so excited about what God is doing through this church. So here's my challenge. I think we're a unique church. I would love to see Hope Community Church rise to a level of financial commitment like no church in America has ever risen. I want us to be biblical. I want us to be obedient to God. I want us to follow his rule for the family. 
One out of every 10. One out of every 10. And I'll tell you right now, if you've never tithed, this is the way you do it. You give it first. And then you learn to live within your means of 90%. Which, by the way, God gave you also. God gave you also. And if you say, I just can't do that right now, then get your affairs in order, but start somewhere at 1%, 2%. Take some of our finance class. Figure out how to get out of debt, how to reorder your financial world. But start somewhere. And if we will do this, this is what I believe we will experience. I believe that as we show God that we're trustworthy with what he gives us, I think that God will present, present us with even more opportunities to partner with him to change this world. Let's bow together. Now, I know a few of you aren't happy right now. Actually, a lot of you. But let me just say this. At the end of the day, this is not a money issue. This is a heart issue. In fact, Jesus is the one to say, where your heart is, that's where your treasure is going to be. So you just think about it, you pray about it, and you be honest before God. And say, God, is this a money issue? Or is this a greed issue? The only way to break the power of greed in your life is to give. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to partner with you. What an honor. What an honor. And I pray that as a church, we, we would just be a good, healthy family. And we would be good managers and good stewards of what you've given us. So that we can take advantage of the opportunities that you've put in front of us. That we can see lives transformed and marriages put back together. We can see healing take place. We can see this old, sick, dying world restored into a relationship with you. Give us the passion to do that. And the courage to be obedient to you. In your name we pray.